0: Well, it's a super thankful morning for all of us to be able to arrive this morning. Um, for those of us who are in traffic uh, who are arriving, yeah, I'm praying for you. <laughs> and for those of who are here already, I got here at 8.30 in the morning and let me through. And uh, um, it, was, uh, it was a blessing to be able to have that and to know that I will be here. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, verse 16 to 23, speaking on maturity. Um, is a a tremendous topic for each one of us to apply to. Um, We are all learning to be mature in Christ. Um, The world is against us. There are many people who are seeking to raise up their own ideology, but God himself has a truth which he wants us to know, the truth of his word, the truth of his holiness, the truth of his son. And those of us who are mature in Christ will be guided into that. And so, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 23, we're going to read this passage, and we will dive into it. Let's read this together. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. Anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, so he might become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in the craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, Paulus or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ. Is God's bow in the word prayer? Our Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful that your church stands, your church meets, Lord, and we're here Sunday morning as we always do, while the world is celebrating something else, Lord, celebrating their own desires, and really a fleshly desire. What we're doing is that we're celebrating a spiritual desire, a desire to honor you, a desire to glorify you, a desire to, to please you with our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we can represent you. This morning here. And we know, Lord, that in the spiritual world, this is much bigger than what we can visually see. Visually, we see a few people here, but in the spiritual world, we see a battle. And we know, Lord, that battle is fought by all of us being here this morning, representing you, listening to you, being guided to you and growing you. And we're thankful, Lord, for individuals who have sacrificed their time and effort and and ability and and all this and, and just just the, the patience to be here. And we thank you, Lord, for this morning. Help us, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit to be guided into your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the most attractive quality to a person? I remember one time I had a conversation with a high-end executive. He was a relative of mine and also uh, a vice president of his company. He was telling me what he was looking for in an individual who applies to uh, a particular job in his company. Now, he's an engineering uh, vice president, and people from MIT or Harvard or Stanford or Berkeley, they all applied to his company. It was a big company. And he looks for applicants. However, there are also other individuals who apply from city colleges, community colleges. So he was telling me that... um, whether one applies, whether they're from Berkeley or Stanford or MIT or whether they're from a city community college, Fullerton, or any, any other colleges that are just within the city itself, it really matters very little to him. He doesn't really care whether they're from MIT or Harvard or Berkeley. They might get the first interview. They might get the interview first, but ultimately, in the end, he's going to interview all of them. He's going to see who they are. People might have wasted tens of thousands of dollars because he doesn't really care where they're from. What he's looking for is this. Is he looking for whether this person is able to work with others, whether this person has a humble attitude, whether this person is an easy person to get along with, whether this person can learn or has the capacity to learn and wants to learn. He's looking for the characteristic of a mature person in his workplace. Now, all of us are looking for people who are mature in the people who we partner with. We all want people who are mature in our lives, especially when we look for someone we're going to marry, right? You can look for a beautiful person, a good-looking person, but if the person is not mature, you're going to have a hard time in that marriage. You want a person who's mature as your spouse. Not only so, you want a person who's mature as your friend. You want mature friends. You don't want just friends that are immature and leading you down the wrong path. You want a friend who's mature that leads you down the right path, a friend that you can rely upon. You want a mature person to be in your business, in your business dealings, in your partnership with others. Because if the person is not mature, your business dealings could come to an end. It could be a very difficult situation that you find yourself in. You want individuals who are mature in your lives, and our God is the same way. He wants individuals who are mature in his relationship. With us. You see, our God looks forward to individuals who will respond to him in maturity. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. The man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, what? On the heart. God looks at the heart. A man could have beautiful outward appearance. A man could look spectacular on the outside, young, cute, tall, right? Do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature. It could look beautiful on the outside, but God rejected this person because this person is not mature, and certainly that person was Saul, who God has rejected, but God looked at David, who was mature. God is looking for a person, who is after his own heart. This is God's intent. God wants us to be after his own heart. That's what he said of David. He's looking for men or women who wants to engage in that relationship with God because ultimately when God first created us, he created us to be people after his own heart. He wants us to be in his presence. He made a garden, a special place, where he's going to be, in a special place where we're going to be. We're going to be forever with God in that garden, forever enjoying God, knowing more about God, celebrating the presence of God, worshiping Him. However, that is what we abandon. See, in the very beginning, we're not very mature at all. We were given tremendous gifts of God. We're like that child has been given tremendous gifts, but we said to our parent, we don't need you. We can be off on our own. We'll be better. But the reality is that we were not better, but we were worse. Satan came to us and said, you don't need God. You can operate on your own wisdom. You can operate in your own intent. You could be your own person. You eat of this fruit. You could be as wise as God. You don't need God anymore. And the reality is that he lied to us. We were not better. We were worse. Sin entered into the world. Deceit entered into the world. Brokenness entered into the world. All the ugly things we have in our lives, the depression, the sadness, the hurts, The hurtful words, the hurtful actions, all came to the world because of sin. Because we took that step to say, we don't need God. We were very, very immature. Our God, however, loves us and cares for us and desires for us to return to Himself. He wants us to return to that relationship in which we are mature in Him. But that relationship must first begin with a restored relationship with God. And that restored relationship, God came through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself lived that perfect life, which we did not live or could not live, and give that perfect life to you and to me as righteousness. And he died on the cross to pay for the punishment that is due you and to me, which we couldn't pay for because we would be forever suffering in the fires of hell, and that would... Then us nowhere, but he did it six hours on the cross, paid for the punishment that's due us for our sins. And he died, but he rose again from the dead to show us that we will also rise again with him if we believe unto him. That eternal life, Jesus says in the book of John, begins today in you. He who believes in Christ will not die. Eternal life begins today. That eternal life we study today in our Sunday morning Bible study is our maturity in Christ. We get to be restored unto God. We get to progressively become more like Jesus. Even though our bodies would die, our spirit is being renewed day by day. We do have eternal life today. We do progress in our maturity today. We do grow to be more like Jesus today. And this is the message here today in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 23. We get to be more like Jesus. This progressive, we call it a progressive sanctification, is a biblical word, but really what it means is a progressive maturity. Each one of us who are in Christ gets to mature in Christ. Not only do we have our relationship with God restored, we get to become more and more like Jesus as we live day by day, and this is the good news for us. Not only do we not get to be stuck in our sins, we get to be more like Jesus— in our pursuit of Him in this world. And we've saw this and we've seen this actually in our last week's study when we talked about the three marks of maturity in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A mature person, first of all, is one who values maturity. We talked about this last week. Values maturity, seeks after the rewards of Christ, and works well with others in a kingdom work which God's called all of us to Those are the three characteristics which we saw last week. Today, we're going to continue in that. We're going to talk about the fourth characteristic. The fourth characteristic of a mature person in Christ is this. A mature person in Christ is the one who understands the judgment of God. He understands the severity of the judgment of God. We see this in verse 16 to 17 of chapter 3. It says this. Do you not know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Wow. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. As we come to this passage, we're understanding that Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. This particular church is a church that's been cherished by God. Cherished by Paul, too. Paul spent a lot of time in this church, spent a lot of time writing this church, spent a lot of time, his personal time in this church, ministering this church. Year and a half one of the longest periods of time that Paul has spent on a on single church in his career as a missionary. Spent a lot of time in this church. He called this church blessed in God, namely because it's a church of saints. In verse 2, we read that it's a church of saints, church of holy ones. It's not because the church got everything down and is imperfect in its all its conduct. As we read later on in this passage and later on in this book, the church has a lot of things that it needs to work on, a lot of division, a lot of problems, a lot of immoralities going around in this church, a lot of impurities going around in this church. However, this is a church of saints, not because it's perfect in its conduct, but because it's been saved by the blood of Jesus. Once you're saved, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith through Jesus Christ, through faith by Christ. You're saved by believing. And this church believed in Jesus Christ, so therefore the blood of Jesus covers them, cleanses them from their sins. They're saints in the Lord. However, even though they're saints... They still have to mature in Christ. So Paul himself displayed to them the ways which they need to mature by first telling them the ways which they've sinned against God. Now, a lot of us were in the world a lot of times in our lives. We don't really know what does it mean to live for the Lord because we carry this worldly ideology which we have operated in for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and we got saved, and we operate that the same way within the church because we don't know better. We think that this is the way everyone operates while God actually calls us to operate in a different way. The world has a way of operating, which they're comparing themselves with others in status, in position, trying to knock down on others and make ourselves look good, elevate ourselves. So what Paul says, right? You guys are acting the ways in which you're acting in the world. You're carrying the ways of the world into the church, and this is not the way that you should do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 says this, you're still of the flesh, the flesh is the waste of the world. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Paulus." Are you not being merely human? Paul says, the way that you're acting is the way that you act in the world. and I want to teach you to do better. There is a maturity that you need to have in your life. There is a greater vision that you can cast for your own life. You don't need to act in the way which you act in the world. You can actually act Christ-like. Like, there is a Christ-likeness that you could pursue. You're jealous. You have strife, You're comparing yourself with others. This is how the world operates. So once you become a Christian, actually, you begin to operate differently. You begin to value spiritual maturity. This is the first point which we saw last week. You value spiritual maturity. You want to become more mature in Christ. You don't want the things of this world anymore. You don't want to think the way you used to think. You want to think the way Jesus thinks. This is the value of those who are spiritually mature. As you begin to value in such a way to value Christ, that is, you begin to work well with others. This is the second characteristic. Christians are not to fight with each other, we're actually to value each other. We're actually to, to, to work alongside each other for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8 says this He who plants and who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul himself also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, and Apollo watered, water, but God gives the growth. We're to work with each other. We're not to knock down each other. That's what, the first, that's what the Corinthian church is doing. They say, well, Paul is this guy. Apollo is this guy. Cephas is this guy. I follow Paul. You follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And we're kind of enemies with each other, groups, factions against each other, creating faction, creating division. Paul says, no, we're one. We're working under the same company. We're receiving wages by our boss, who is the boss of the entire company, which we're all working under. We're simply co-workers in Christ. So begin to understand that if you're mature in Christ. Those of us who are mature in Christ begin to understand this, that we're not to fight with each other within the church. We're to work with each other, seek to complement with each other, seek to contribute to one another, say, how can I make your work better in the Lord? This is the mature attitude in Christ, and not only so, what we saw last week also is that a mature person in Christ looks forward to the rewards that are found in Christ. This is said specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11, where Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, and someone else is building upon it, let each one take care of how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Each one of us all laying, f- which one of us are building on top of that foundation? I mean, we have to lay the foundation. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. The moment that you believe, the moment you have faith in Jesus, you are saved. You're a child of God. You're building on that foundation. That's all of us. However, Paul says there is a difference in terms of how each one of us build. And they're fleshly Christians, Paul says that you're just building on that foundation your fleshly desires. God has called you to do so much more, but then you're wasting your life on social media, in movies, and entertainment. You're just wasting your life indulging in the pleasures of this world, even though you believe, but you're building into your life this hay, wood, and straw, things that don't really matter. The day's going to come, fire's going to burn, and all of your work's going to burn away. You're going to be saved. You can go to heaven, but none of the things you do in this world are truly going to matter. It's not gonna matter at all. And Paul says, But there are others who believe, but really try to make their faith come to life. They're building their life, service unto the Lord, service unto others, preaching the gospel, telling other people to come no to the Lord to come to the Lord. And people get saved under their ministry. These people are building to their lives gold, silver, and precious stones. When the fire comes, as First Corinthians chapter 1 or chapter 3, verse 13 says. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. When the fire comes, the silver, the gold, precious stones will stand, and each one will receive a reward. Verse 14: If the work that anyone who has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So therefore, a mature Christian Christ does this. He looks forward to that judgment of God, this Bema judgment, not the eternal judgment of heaven and hell. No, this judgment of rewards, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We'll stand before the Lord, receive rewards from God, this Bema judgment, a seat judgment. We look forward to this giving accountability to God in terms of how we live our lives. That's a mature person in Christ. A mature person in Christ is wondering what Jesus is going to say when Jesus sees us again. That's a mature person in Christ. An immature person in Christ is going to just kind of fumble through life and just get there and, you know, not really think about it. Mature person in Christ thinks about it quite a bit and want to give account for his own life before the Lord and have that reward, have that praise from God saying, good and faithful servant. That's a mature person in the Lord. So a mature person in the Lord, we saw, is the one who values spiritual maturity. A mature person in the Lord is the one who works well with others in the church for the kingdom of God. And the mature person in the Lord is the one also who looks forward to the rewards in Christ. We saw this. The fourth characteristic which we see this is this, and we just mentioned it. The mature person in Christ is the one who fears the judgment of God. You know that God's going to judge. In fact, First Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God. God's going to purify its church. We see this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. When Paul says this, do you not know that you're God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Here, God's comparing the temple of God to us as a church. A temple of God is a serious place in the Old Testament, it's a serious place. When God built that temple, when Solomon built that temple, God's spirit dwelt within that temple. The glory of God was so powerful that people could not go inside the temple. It says so in 1 Kings 8, verse 11, that when Solomon built the temple and the glory of God came down to the temple and dwelt with the temple, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is something that's powerful, and I wonder if the cloud's there just to muffle that glory so the people can still kind of be around that temple. If not, God's glory can destroy all who are there because His glory is so powerful and so overwhelming. His temple is to be taken seriously. And that is why in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 through 2, when Nabak and Baihu, the sons of Aaron, Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded what happened to them. Fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. You don't take God's temple seriously, God will destroy you. That's what happened to the people of the Old Testament. Anyone who did not take God's temple seriously, they were utterly destroyed because God is glorious, He demands glory. For himself. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there was no need of the temple of God anymore because the temple of God has been effectively transferred to us as the church. The Holy Spirit dwells inside each one of us collectively. The same in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, after Jesus died, this happened. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This particular curtain was separating the Holy of Holies where the Ark of Covenant lies, where the Spirit of God dwelt, to that outer chamber, which is the holy place where the priest minister. There is the showbread, the incense, the manure, which is the candlesticks. Priests can go into the holy place, but they cannot go into the Holy of Holies except for once a year during um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where they bring some blood, symbolizing they've been cleansed by Jesus. They can appear before the Ark of Covenant. But outside of that they cannot go into that temple that veil which separated that innermost chamber to that outer chamber where the priest can go into was torn in two when jesus died on the cross symbolizing this that when he died on the cross for you and for me he opened the pathway for all of us to go in he is that temple and we now have become the temple of god because holy spirit now dwells in us he made the pathway as according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter into that holy place, that holy of place, where the glory of God, the presence of God dwells, because the blood of Jesus covers us. We are the temple of God. So the church is the temple of God. Anyone who comes to the church seeking to be divisive, seeking to cause trouble, seeking to bring a different ideology than what the Bible actually preaches, is going to be trouble with God. God's going to destroy him because God wants to purify the church. God cherishes the church. The church is purchased by something that's rather precious, namely the blood of his own son. So God wants to keep the church pure. As verse 17 says, anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is so evidently made clear in a story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? In Acts chapter 5. Now we have people destroyed by God in the Old Testament. We have people destroyed by God in the New Testament as well when they seek to bring themselves up. Instead of bringing God up within the church of God, this is the elevation of oneself causing division within the church rather than elevating God and his gospel and his grace. You see the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they came to the church and they were giving to the church. Now you can give however much you can give the church. You can give a penny, you can give a dollar, you can give $10, whatever you want to give, you can give. God is not a respecter of person. He looks at the heart. However, for Ananias and Sapphira, what they did is this. They came to the church, they said, we gave this huge amount Seeking for glory for themselves, right? Telling everybody, oh, we gave this, right? I gave this pledge. You see these little coverings, these gold coverings. This is something that we maybe one day would take down. People gave pledged to this church, and this is this is a historic church. Maybe we'll take it all down one day. Said so we gave this much, but what did they do? They didn't. They didn't at all. They didn't at all. Gave that much. So what did God do? God destroyed them. And it's not because he didn't give. I mean, they could keep all for themselves, all for what God cares about, right? For all of we care about. And God wants to look at the heart, but what they did is say they lied. They lied. And they bring division to the church. So in Acts chapter 5, this is what happened to Ananias, the husband. When Peter rebuked Ananias, Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. God destroyed him. For bringing attention to himself, causing division to the church, division from the will of God, the perfect plan of God, the gospel of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, this is what happened to Sapphira when Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will also carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. She died as well because she sought to lie to the Holy Spirit. She elevated herself. Her husband elevated themselves, elevated their, their status, elevated their position instead of elevating God. And if they were successful in doing so, certainly there would be a division to the church because the, divi- because the church is not to be about us in our own accomplishments, but about God. It's about Him. So anyone who seeks to hurt God's church is what God's going to do. God's going to destroy Him. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 says this. For he who touches you, that is the church or the Israel, in this case Israel, but application to us as a church, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You haven't been touching the apple of your eye? You've been jabbing the eye? Were you upset? Yeah, right? You're super upset when you get jabbed in the eye. God says, you know, he who touches God's church, he would try to disrupt God's church, bring different ideology to God's church, preach a different gospel to God's church. It's like you jabbing God in the eye. God's going to punch you in the face. And get rid of you. God is jealous for his church. He will destroy those who destroy God's church. So we need to function carefully within the God's church. This is not a platform for us as individuals. It's a platform for God and his glory. All of us present. All of us just contribute to the glory of God. And we fade away to the background. That's what we're called to do. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, God gave another warning saying this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. God's going to judge. These little ones are any one of us. It could be a little child, but it could be a new believer. Anyone who is distracted, drawn away to a different gospel, if you are a child of God, God's going to be jealous for that person. He's going to destroy those who sought to cause other people to sin. So here in this church and in Church of Corinth, we find this is what marks a mature person in Christ. A mature person in Christ is the one who understands God is God who judges. There's a judgment of God coming, and we're going to all appear before him. And there's a severity of God's judgment for those who seek to destroy God's church. Not only so, not only is a mature person understanding of God's judgment, a mature person also, which we see here, is the one who rests in the wisdom of God, who trusts in the wisdom of God, in his function within the church of God. We're going to see this in verse 18 through 21. And it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written he catches wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So Paul himself here is really reiterating a principle, in fact, which we touched many times in this book already. The foolishness of this world is wisdom to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And the foolishness of God, actually, or the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness to God. It's opposite, it's the dichotomy which is, which is spoken of here. What the world thinks is wise is foolish to God because what the world is seeking and pursuing is only temporal. But God's wisdom is humility. God's wisdom is seeking to do his will, obedience to his will, in spite of what the world says and and what the world is seeking after. The world thinks you're absolutely nuts coming to church, wasting your time worshiping God that you cannot see. That's just foolish to the people of the world. So God says this. Don't be deceived. What is foolish in the world is wise to God. What is foolish to God is wise in the world. There's a dichotomy here. Nowhere in the Bible as you're going to find. Nowhere in the Bible any faithful person in the Bible, any hero of the faith in the Bible is in friendship with the world. The world has not changed. The world is the same world as it is in the biblical account. It's the same world. So how can you and I think that we could be friends with people of the world and still be pleasing to God? It's never, ever happened in Scripture. Never happened. So it's not going to happen to you either. In fact, if you want to be wise in God, you will be considered foolish to the people of the world. You will be an enemy with the world. You will be in enmity with the world. So what is wise in God? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Jesus himself is the personification of wisdom. You want to know what it means to be wisdom of God? Do you live like Jesus? Was Jesus friends with the world? No, he was not. He was mocked, killed, and crucified. He was not friends with the world. But this is what he did in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. He says this, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So we have Jesus here who lived that life, a particular life in which he was obedient to the Father, obedient to the will of God. He did not conform to the standards of this world, but rather conformed to the standards of God, even at great opposition to the people of this world. And people killed him, right? People were seeking to destroy him. And what happened? He was obedient. He was humble. He was appearing to be weak. The world says, you're weak. You're not strong. We could destroy you in a minute. Jesus says, go ahead seems to be foolish, right, to the people of the world, but it's wisdom in God because what God did is this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. This is what happened to Jesus. God says As I will exalt those who are humble. I will oppose those who are proud. This is the wisdom of God. This is how God operates in this world, operates in eternity. Jesus, I'm going to hang on to the wisdom of God. I'm going to live the way he calls me to live. I'm not going to live the way the world says, which is lifting yourself up, trying to grab every single thing before other people take it. No, I'm going to lift it, leave it all to the Lord. God's going to honor me. God's going to exalt me. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this, you need to have this mind among yourselves. This need to be your mindset, this humility, this wisdom of trusting in God, living in God's ways, trusting God's word. Defying all the ideology and the wisdom of this world which is outside of us because we believe that God's word is sufficient for us. That's what God says. So in verse 18, Paul says, you actually might or actually will become foolish so that you can actually be wise. If you really are of God, the world will think of you as foolish. That's just what's going to happen. You're not going to... Be apart from this reality. This reality is going to describe you. This truth is going to be you if you choose to follow God and be wise in God. Verse 19 to 20 says, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. As it is written, he he catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and then they are futile. These are quotations of the Old Testament. From Job chapter 5, verse 13, that conversation between Job and the friends where this friend says that he catches the wise in their craftiness, describing God as the one who is wise in light of the craftiness of the world. And Psalm chapter 94, verse 11, again, another exaltation of the thoughts of God that they are greater than the thoughts of this world. Thoughts of God are greater. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts are higher. His wisdom is higher. His ways are better. All of us, if we're to rest in that, trust in that, we certainly will be blessed, even though the world thinks that we will not be. In the end, we will. See, one of the stories that demonstrate that is Joshua. Joshua chapter 6, you know that story where Joshua was marching around the city of Jericho. Seven days, and the seven days he's going to march around the city seven times. Now we just think, oh, just a march around, it's kind of fun, you know, just kind of see what happens. No. You ever seen movies where people actually attack a city? What did they do to the people under the city or around the city? They throw what? Rocks at them, right? Flaming, boiling liquid, shooting arrows at them. They're trying to destroy those people who are around the city. They know they're going to come and take the city. Now, the people of Jericho, uh, people of Jericho needlessly say are doing that while Joshua and his army is circling the city, not even attacking back. Not even attacking back, just saying, I'm going to rest in the wisdom of God. I'm not going to throw I'm not going to uh, cut down some wood and try to break down the door. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm just going to walk around the city. It's absolute foolishness to the people who are watching them. In fact, there was a, a particular comic or a particular animation called, um, what do you call it, Veggie Tales. It demonstrated this. It's like people are just mocking them, making fun of them, right? A little piece, right? Making fun of the people who are walking around the city. And that's what they were doing. But not only so, they are probably throwing arrows at them and probably, probably throwing rocks at them, probably throwing flaming boiling liquids at them, and probably some of the Israelites are lost as we are marching around the city seven times. But what did God do? God said, "Just do it." Makes no sense at all, right? Just do it. I'm not asking you to understand. Work through you. And when the seventh day come, they watched the city seven times. The last time they marched on the city, what happened? The walls of Jericho fell down. They just marched right in and took the city. The power of God in display. When the world thinks we're weak, we're weak. We're strong in the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven through ten gives the same principle. When Paul shares the gospel, he says, Our lives is like this. But we have this treasures or treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body, death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. He says, everybody try to destroy me. Everybody try to destroy us because we look so weak. They look at us and say, we can just knock them down right away and gospel will be stopped. So we're like these jars, these clay jars with treasures inside because we share the gospel, and they try to destroy us, but somehow they just could not. Weird. We don't know why, right? We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body of death of Jesus, and in the same way, manifesting the life of Jesus in us. How does that make sense? Only makes sense because the power of God is at work in us. Empowering us to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. This is something that Paul also said in First Corinthians chapter one, verse 28 and 29. We already saw this. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, ours, so that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. It's God's intent to boast of Himself through us, who are weakened vessels, who are Vessels that are considered to be not strong in this world because God wants himself to receive all the glory. And if you want to be operating in that power of God, then you need to embrace his wisdom. Not fighting for yourselves, not fighting for your own rights, but trusting in God who will fight through you. This is the wisdom of God. A mature person does this. A mature person rests in the wisdom of God. A mature person we also saw is the one who understands the judgment of God. The third characteristic is this. The third characteristic is this. A mature person is the one who is satisfied in God. A mature person is satisfied in God. We're going to see this in verse 21 to 23. It says this. Let no one boast him in. For all things are yours, whether Paul and Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. It says so everything yours. You guys just... Millionaires fighting over pennies if you're just fighting with each other you don't need to be divisive among yourselves you have more than that you have been given all the blessings in christ you have been given so many things you'll need to fight over minuscule things begins to talk about the things you've been given all things are yours the spiritual blessings begins with verse 22 whether paul and Apollos is a see this church has been fighting over Who is to be more respected? And Paul says this. You're talking about Paul and Apollos or Cephas, these teachers? They're all yours. You don't need to just pick one. You can pick all of them. They're all yours. Teachers are just properties of God's church. That's all we are. You can learn from all of them. You don't need to fight with each other. They're all yours as long as they're teaching the truth of God. Learn from all of them. Go to the evening service. Go to the morning service. Go to whatever, right? They're all yours. All yours. Not only so, the world is yours. Verse 22, this is how specific Paul is getting down to. He said, I want to mention to you everything that's yours so that you would not be fighting over minuscule things. You wouldn't be feeling like other people are hurting you. It's like, no, forget it, right? Other people take a dollar from you. You're a millionaire. Who cares? You drop the dollar somewhere in Hollywood. You have a million dollars. You're not going to drive back. Gas money costs you so much. You're like, forget it, right? Forget it. You have a lot. The world is yours. Verse 22. What is this talking about? He's saying that you're going to own the world. God's going to own the world. One day, God's glory is going to fill the earth. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The world is yours because when we are with God at that moment, when God's glory fills the earth, we're going to be presented with God in glory. We're going to be reigning alongside with Him. The world is ours. Not only the world is ours, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 19, by the way, that's the revealing of God in glory. We're gonna be revealed with God in glory. Not only the world is ours, verse 22 says this life or death is ours as well. Life is yours, death is yours. Now, these are blessings he's talking about. So, how can life be a blessing? Here's how life can be a blessing to you Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says this For me to live is Christ. Life is a blessing because you get to exemplify Christ in your life. You get to live in fruitful labor for the Lord. Paul says, I want to stay with you. I want to be with Jesus, but I'm going to be with you because it's fruitful labor for me. I want to see fruitful labor within the church of God. This is what makes me want to be here in this world right now. If it wasn't for this church, I don't really know why I'm here. Really. I want to see this church grow. I want to see this church flourish. I want to see people mature in Christ. And everybody who matures in Christ here in this church, as God's given me uh, the privilege to be a pastor here, brings tremendous amount of joy to my life. And I think that's the same should, that should be the same for you as well. If you're ministering in the church, seeing other people come to know the Lord, other people's wounds healed, other people's spiritual condition better, it brings tremendous joy, right? When we pray for an individual, we see God answer their prayers. That's a tremendous joy, right? It's like, praise God. That's what makes your life worth it. You get to see God conquering satan using you to do it that's a tremendous joy right amen not only so death is yours how is death yours? Because if you do die, you get to see the Lord. You get to be shed away from your pain, from the sorrow, from the problems of this world, from the lack of whatever, whatever it is that you struggle with day to day. and just our sins and everything. We get to be away from those things. God's going to provide for us, but we get to end those struggles when we die, right? get to be with the Lord. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says this when we see God face to face, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We're going to enter in that new life. Death is just a door, just a gate for us to enter into eternity where we'll be forever joyful with our Lord. So, death is a blessing. Life is a blessing. Death is a blessing. Not only Psalm so verse 22 says, present or future, that is yours as well. Those are blessings. Present times, everything that happened in this world, God has had it in control. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything in this world, everything that happens in your life. Everything that happens your present, everything that may seem some kind of sad, some, somewhat discouraging, whatever that happens or good things, whatever happens in your life is for the good of you. God's going to use it for your glory. God's going to turn it around for his glory and for your good. You can trust in that. The present is yours because God is sovereign, is orchestrating your life for his purposes. You will see that in eternity if not here on this earth some of us get to see that here on this earth but if not all of it we'll see all of eternity in terms of how the things of this world things of our present work together for the good of those who love god and also according to matthew chapter 6 verse 28 the future is ours and jesus says this look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns and your heavenly father feeds them are you not more valued than they? Your future is God's as well. You may be concerned about the future. You may be wondering what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, how the money's going to come, and, and how you're going to live, and all these things. So God says, don't worry. I got your future in my hands. I'll take care of you. Look at the birds in the air. They're not worrying. They're not wondering. I take care of them. I'll take care of you. You're more valuable than the birds. The future is yours. Ultimately, all things are going to be Christ's. First Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, All things, all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. And also in Ephesians 1, verse 10, God has planned for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. That is, all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. Everything's going to be united under the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things happening in this world which are not under Christ today because Satan is being given partial rule right now in this world by God for the time being. But God's going to stop all that eternity. He's going to bring all things under him. Nothing will not be under Christ. Any, everything will be under Christ. That includes you, me, all the things. In that sense, we could rejoice with God. God is going to be overall, as it says here also in verse 22 Christ is God's. We are all Christ. Christ is God's. Everything's going to be unified together. If we understand these blessings of God, if we understand all the blessings which you've been given, then certainly we would not be wasting our time with ideologies of this world. The reason why we waste our time with ideologies of this world is because we're not satisfied with who we are and what we've been given. Think about the state of the church. And this is what, pretty relevant to what is happening outdoors these days. The church largely had been on a decline in America for a very, very long time. Actual 50, 60 years. The mainline churches, you talk about the Presbyterian Church of United States of America, one of the biggest branch of church in America. We're talking about the denomination. Boasting 4.3 million members in 1965 dwindled down to about 1.13 million today. Losing 3 million members in a matter of 50 years. Churches are on a decline. People don't go to church anymore. And you would think that's because, oh, we're not relevant. No, the church, Presbyterian Church of United States of America, had tried to be relevant. They did. They were accommodating to the sexual things, the sexual orientation, saying you could be a man if you want to be a man, you could be a woman if you want to be a woman. They were saying the Bible is not authoritative. They were saying all kinds of, they were, they were letting the doors open to all kinds of ideology because why? Because they want the church to grow. Want people to come to church, say, you know what? Uh, We will bend to your ideology. We'll bend to your ideology. Just come to our church. And you know what? They still didn't. That's the sad part. You bend your ideology, you 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 bend on the word of God, and people of the world just says, Yep, gotcha. I gotcha. But they still don't come to church. They still don't know Jesus. They still don't, know, don't understand the gospel. And as far as the other branches of, of, Christ, uh, of, of church in America, namely the Presbyterian Church of Presbyterian church America, PCA, not PCUSA, PCA, the conservative part, the part that holds to the authoritative word of God, that branch grew 32, well, 300, 328,000 members in 2019. Grew. 2019, with all the craziness going on, people come to church because they want to hear the word of God. So you bend to the world. That's how you decline. I'm not saying that I I know this church will grow. I mean, faithfulness, church can grow. Church may not. But I do know how churches decline. Churches decline when you begin to bend to the ways of the world. Now, people do come to the church, I believe, for good reasons the church that grew that is the Presbyterian Church of America, they grew 324,000 members in 2019 because people actually want to hear about the Word of God. Word of God is because there is an innate desire in each one of us, I believe, whether you believe it or not. There's an innate desire in humanity to want to return to the image of God. There's an innate desire. If you just let the church look like the world, people just say, well, I can just be in the world. I don't need to come to church. But if you proclaim a message that's different from the world, then people actually will come in and wonder, what do you have that I don't have? And there's an innate desire, because God made that innate desire, each one of us, when he made us, that we would be in his image. We lost that, of course. We lost that when we sinned against God, when we walked away from him, and now there's pride, there's sin that's blocking us away from God, and we don't really know how to get back to him. So people don't really know how to get back to God. That's why the gospel comes in. We need to share with people the gospel. Jesus made a way. He made a way. All you need to do is humble yourself. Amen. You can clap for that. All you need to do is humble yourself and believe. Repent of your sins. Believe and cry out to God to receive you and raise you of the sins which you've done in your lives. That's all that you need to do. The kingdom of God as according to Matthew 5, verse 3, belongs to who? Those who are what? Poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you don't trust in your wisdom, trust in your ideology, trust in the education of the worldly philosophies, trusting what God clearly declares, you will inherit that blessing of God, the blessings of God in the kingdom is more than you can imagine and think of. And that blessing is here today with us in this church. Now, we look around the church. We're kind of small today because of the parade, and many people are stuck in traffic, and many people didn't get the word that we're going to have a different route coming in. So it's okay. We're, we normally have more, but the, the, the reality is no matter how big or small we are, and I, you see the way I preach, I don't care whether, you know, we, we are going to celebrate and have fun, right, together and, and be the body of Christ, whether a lot of people or very little people. That's what we do, Right? So Coco does too, right? She's leading worship, the same energy, right? Same capacity we give to all of us because we're not here simply because we are looking at numbers. We're here because we have a spiritual blessing in each one of us. That when we gather, we get to enjoy. A blessing which we get to grow in the Lord, a blessing in which we get to encourage one another in the Lord, a blessing which we get to offer to one another. To cause another person to think about Jesus and to, to grow in him. These are the spiritual blessings. We get to experience that in our hearts. Whether we're big or small, we get to experience that. This is the spiritual blessing of being gathered together as a church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, Yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a spiritual blessing. And so when we come to church, I, you know, I just want to be a blessing to you. you know, I, I don't care about the numbers. You know, but I, I, this is a lesson hopefully for you as well. You come. You don't care about the numbers either. You just want to be a blessing to anyone who's here. We're a blessing to each other. The more spiritual blessings we can imagine, give out, or live through here in our church, and we're to take advantage of that here in our gathering this morning. That's a mature person in Christ. A mature person in Christ what is one who's satisfied with the blessings of God. A mature person in Christ is the one who understands that God judges. And a mature person in Christ is the one who who is wise in the Lord, who takes the wisdom of God seriously. Now, we're called to be satisfied in the Lord. We're called to be satisfied in Him. I consider myself, I end with this illustration. I try to be healthy in my life. I try to eat healthy. I don't don't always do it. But the reality is that when I'm like, prepare my sermon and i prepare my sermon throughout the night sometimes because i do a lot of ministry work here in the church i go home my wife goes to sleep and they're typing my sermon and i'm getting hungry at night you know obviously you, you you experience that i open the fridge there's food there and sometimes a cupboard the junk foods i try not to get the junk foods because other people given to me and so they're there that's the temptation but i try to pick out the good food to eat right the, the 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 lean meats, or if I'm not the vegetable, I, I you know just there the fruits you know at, at nighttime because when I'm full, then I'm not as attracted to the junk foods that are in the cupboards. The same goes with each one of us. If you are enjoying the good things of the Lord. If you're enjoying the Word of God, enjoying fellowship, come to church and, and, and really seek to be satisfied with the good things. And it takes discipline because you have to make that choice, right? You have to pick out that veggie and not that chocolate bar, not that ice cream, that vegetable, right? That fruit. And it's good, right? Get good vegetables, right? Get good, good, good fruits and eat those good things. And once you eat it, then you're not going to eat that thing, the other junk food anymore because you're full and satisfied. That's what God wants you to be. God wants us to be satisfied in Him. He's not there to kill your joy. He's not there to, to just deprive you of your life. No, He wants you to be satisfied. and He wants you to find satisfaction in Him and Him alone. And Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. 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 Spout the word prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this Sunday morning which you allowed us to meet. You opened the door. We pray for this. And we're thankful for individuals that come. We're thankful for individuals who are watching and who are celebrating with us online because of various other reasons. We know, Lord, that we need to gather as a church. As the world gathers for different reasons, they're celebrating in a way of their own desires, their own own way of living life apart from you, apart from considering what you're calling them to be. We're celebrating you. This is what true mature person need to be. We're all called to be mature people in Christ because you made us in such a way. So we thank you, Lord, that we get to have this focus. Help us, Lord, to maintain that focus, not just here today, but in our testimony throughout the week. We know that, Lord, we're going to encounter various other people, and we pray that other people may be jealous, in a way, good jealous of us because they see that we're satisfied with the truth of God, something they don't have, and then themselves want the same thing as well for their own lives. We're thankful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.